Good morning again. Privilege to be here with you. One announcement, a very important announcement I failed to make earlier. Uh, we will actually have church tonight, 6 o'clock. Uh, we're not reinstating our Sunday evening service, as we said, so I'm not talking about speaking out of both sides of my mouth here. But we're going to have a few Sunday evening services over the next few months so our interns can preach. Uh, and uh, so Matthew Quick will be preaching tonight the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're looking forward to that with expectancy. Matthew is a very gifted communicator, so come. You will be edified. That's at 6 o'clock in here, uh, so you don't want to miss that. We'll be doing that again over the next few months, and uh, it's a, just a great high privilege of mine to work with these interns and to watch them grow and mature and, uh, and sort of take off uh, eventually as, as future pastors and leaders in the churches. So uh, you don't want to miss that, but uh, so we'll be praying for him this afternoon. All right, so take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue to walk very slowly through this, this hall of faith. As you know, I love to call it this Cooperstown of the Christian faith, of the faithful life, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's a very rich chapter, and we'll be in it a couple more weeks, uh, and then we'll move on to chapter 12. But I hope this has been as rich for you as it has for me. Today we'll be looking at verses of 23 through, I'm going to go through 29. I think they fit together after upon further review. So let us hear now the word of the Lord is inspired by His Spirit. I'm going to read verse 1, as has been our practice, to give us that context. And then I'll skip down and read verses 23 to 29. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now verse 23. <clears throat> Excuse me. By faith, Moses... When he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Wow. <clears throat> By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea, as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And this is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. May he add his blessings to this reading of it. Let's pray. God in heaven, I cast myself on your mercy today. Lord, I come preaching this morning with a heavy heart. And you know my circumstances, Lord. <clears throat> I come after, like these fine people, after having not slept too much last night, Lord, and so give me grace and strength to preach your word now. I need an extra effusion of grace today and strength to preach your word and give this congregation ears to hear, Lord. Uh, I pray you would uh, uh, help them to dial into this, Lord, and I pray that by your spirit you would work in their hearts to sanctify them, to make them holy, and if there be one here today who does not know you, I pray today would be the day, Lord, when you begin a work of grace in them, drawing them irresistibly drawing them effectually to yourself unto salvation so they might live for your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. <clears throat> well, many times through this series, I've quoted a, 
a passage. It's in, it's in uh, three of the Gospels at least, but Luke 9, 23 to 25. I want to quote this again because this has massively impacted my own understanding of the Christian life. And I think what we see today in Moses here is an illustration of this great Christian truth. And it's this. And Jesus said to all, speaking to his disciples, and to all those hearing, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And here's the question before us. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Indeed. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world, everything the world has to offer, and everyone knows you, and everyone loves you, and yet you don't do business with God, and you forget about your own soul. What will it profit you on that day? I, I come to you with a heavy heart this morning. One of my dearest friends in the world of 50-plus years, his father went home to be with the Lord yesterday, and I have been, I've had a heavy heart all weekend. He was my dad's, one of my dad's best friends and one of the last of my father's friends to go home to be with the Lord. And so it's brought this text back to me because he was a man who was rich, Harold Dyer is his name, and they watch us sometimes, and so I'm praying for comfort for his family. His son was one of my best friends, but he was a, a godly man, a man of integrity, a man who loved Jesus. And so today he is absent with the body, but present with the Lord. And we have that confidence, and so that's my question. He saw the prophet of Jesus to be more than anything in this world. How about you? How about you? Because you've heard me say many times, and as Moses proves here, as all these paragons of faith prove, there is no crown without a cross. As Doug preached a couple weeks ago, your best life is not now, your best life is later. Boy, wouldn't it be pitiful if this were all there was. And of course, our world, they're looking for that, right? They're trying to find, if this is all there is, there's just more and more and more, and you can see the dissatisfaction, the discontentment in them, can't you? All this, the bubbling in our society now, in our culture, the, this disenchantment with everything, the, the call for justice, when we know good and well, and though we work for it, it's not going to happen in this world. And things like that become an idol because they're chasing something that can never be caught, can be found in Christ alone. Indeed, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And many of you know the name J.C. Ryle. I've quoted him lots. He has one of the best expositions in a book called Holiness. I recommend your reading. Uh, I've recommended it before. Uh, this I've ever seen. So I'm going to quote him uh, as application because he says it far better than I can throughout this. I've got a few really good quotes this morning that really is going to, I think, help us to dig into this a little bit. But now remember chapter 11. Because J.C. Ryle's unimportant. Moses is important. The inspired word of God is important. That's not inspired. This is. Chapter 11 is meant to deepen your confidence in God's promise, in his faithfulness. As you see him being faithful to Moses and to Abraham and to Enoch and others, to deepen your confidence in him so that you persevere in the faith, so that you turn from the fleeting pleasures of sin and live out the radical kind of love that comes from having your hope, not in this world, not in anything this world, even the good things this world has to offer, but in Christ alone. 
We saw last week, right, Abraham being tempted to idolize his son. A good thing, the son of promise even. And yet, there's something far greater than the son of promise. So Moses' story. In his story, let's turn back to Exodus chapter 2 and read verses 1 to 10. All the way back to the front of your Bible. Genesis, then Exodus chapter 2. As we engage his story, or at least the beginning of his story, which is where the author of Hebrews has us this morning. I'm sorry, I'm really dry because of allergies today. We hear the story of the birth of Moses, this narrative. He says, Now a man, and I believe Moses wrote this, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could no, hide him no longer, she took him for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, waterproofing. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, the Nile River. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. So he goes and gets his mom to come and nurse him. Love this. Love God's providence. Love this irony. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him up out of the water. So here we have Moses' story. It's well known. Well known even to those who aren't Christians usually. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, fearing the growing numbers of Israelites that were going to take over his kingdom, had the firstborn, or all, rather, I'm sorry, all the Hebrew boys killed. Commanded they all be Killed, come out of the womb and be murdered. He wasn't pro-life. And so after he was born, Moses' parents concealed him in this basket, placed him on the Nile River in a floating basket, entrusting him to the Lord's care, rather than letting him be killed by Pharaoh's henchmen. And so as a result of God's providential working, Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the royal household of the Egyptian king, and that's a very, very important detail. She's raised in the house of Pharaoh. He is. Moses had everything in the kingdom at his disposal. All the riches, all the people, all the power, all the glory at his disposal. Think about this. Think about this one small act and how it impacted world history. Moses becomes Israel's redeemer. A picture of Christ, doesn't he? In Deuteronomy 18, 15, <coughs> Moses is going to say, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Looking forward hundreds of years, thousands of years, and seeing Jesus Christ. And so he's a type of Christ here, right? He points like a big finger forward to the redeemer who's going to come. He, he's the mediator of Israel. He's going to pray for Israel and put his life on the line for Israel lots, courageously and then not so courageous sometimes, but mostly courageous. 
But think about the God, the sovereignty of God in the story of Moses. Because all of Western civilization, all of the ancient Near Eastern, Eastern history, indeed all of human history, I would argue, is changed by a baby's cry. Think about it. I think she found it because there's a baby in there and he's crying. And she hears a baby in the bulrushes out on the Nile River. That's not where you usually find a baby, right? He's crying. She hears it. She goes. She fetches him. Think about that. How human history was changed by God's design by one baby's cry. Isn't the doctrine of God's providence beautiful? I love the old proverb. For one of a nail, the shoe was lost. For one of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. Want meaning, meaning lack. For want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And all from the want, the lack of a horseshoe nail. Horse loses its shoe, and they lose the kingdom, and the entire course of history has changed. Little things mean a lot, don't they? In your life, think of little, small details. I love how Brad Paisley, a much more countrified version of how he puts it, he says, love starts with a toothbrush, right? When he's tracing out a teenage boy on his first date, he brushes his teeth, puts on some cologne, he's going to smell good, looking good for her. They get married, they have a bunch of kids, and the kids, you know, they maybe change the world. And love starts with a toothbrush. It's the same thing. It's just a countryfied way of putting it, okay? So if you didn't get the one, you'll get the other, <laughs> right? Uh-oh. One of a shoe, one of a nail, a baby's cry changes everything. I just always want to point out, I delight in pointing out God's sovereignty, His absolute meticulous sovereignty throughout Scripture. Read John Piper's new book. Not right now. It's like 800 pages. I just got it. On providence. It's the entire doctrine of providence throughout the whole Bible. I can't wait to read it. I just got it the other day. I'll use it to prop my door open until then. Nobody's going to get through that door. That thing is huge. <laughs> it's like a cement block. Now, that's a real book, in my opinion. But God is sovereign. And so through the cry of this baby, Moses is found, and a Hebrew nation is formed. And you're here. You know that? You're here because an Egyptian woman, one of Pharaoh's daughters, heard a baby's cry. I love tracing things back like that. We talk about this all day, right? We talk about this all the time in our household, how, you know, all these things. My father was shot in World War II, and the bullet missed his heart by about a quarter of an inch. And I'm here because it didn't hit his heart. And I always tell my kids, you're here because of that. You just trace it. And it's God's will. It's God's divine providence, right? His, his ordination of all things. And I take great comfort in that. We must move on. But you see what God's up to here. God's guiding, superintending this. He foreordained all these events before the foundation of the world. And so we see the choices Moses made here, according back in Hebrews chapter 11. And that's it. See, he's, he's a, a member of, of Pharaoh's family, living in his household, everything at his disposal, and he makes some difficult choices. And we see the high cost, but also the rich rewards of choosing to follow Christ. That's the whole point of the sermon. Don't go to sleep on me yet, but that's the, the point of the whole sermon. The heart of the passage, we'll see in verses 25 to 27. Here, faith leads to choices. Moses made some startling choices, and they provide, I think, again, what's the main point of the text here. He gave up some things. He gave up three things, in fact. Gave them up for the sake of what? His own soul. You know, there's good things in your life that you could give up that would lead to the salvation of your own soul. You say, yeah, I know alcohol and drugs, and I don't mean that. I mean, yeah, those are, that's true, but there's small things, idols that make, idols in your heart take captive of your heart, but they don't make good gods. 
And sometimes we're called to give those things up. That's part of the point of this whole passage. So Moses gave up three things because he felt that his soul would not be saved if he kept them. Not bad things, good things, but they were so encaptured his soul that he would go after them hard and worship them and fail to see and savor Christ, to use John Piper's language. First of all, he gave up great rank and greatness. Verse 24, when he was grown up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Who knows? Moses might have been the king of Egypt. He might have been heir to the throne. Can you imagine that? We're kings and princes in the news right now, right? In a fairly pathetic way, I, I must say. <laughs> we'll, we digress. It's hard to understand that in this country, in a, in a democracy, but Moses could have been king in Egypt. I mean, kingship for him over Egypt meant apostasy from the living God. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Kingship for Moses equals apostasy from the living God. What are you hanging on to that keeps you from God? What do you hang on to that keeps you from intimacy with God? Young person, young person, what are you hanging on to that keeps you from God? A lot of young people here. I say that and you're all like, yeah, that's me. And you're right. <laughs> but, but Moses gave up rank, greatness. Think of the army. Think of generals. Think of colonels and sergeants. He gave up rank. Get him into five-star general. He said, no, it'll keep me from Christ. J.C. Ryle said, here was a man of like passions with ourselves. He might have had as much greatness as the earth can well give. He might have had it all. We don't know. Rank and power and place and honor and titles, dignities all were before him and within his grasp. These are the things for which many men are continually struggling. These are the prizes which there is an incessant race in the world around us to obtain. What are you in a mad race to obtain besides Christ? To be somebody, he says, to be looked up to, to raise ourselves in the scale of society, to get a title to our names. These are the very things for which many sacrifice time and thought and money and health and life itself. And you hear the echo. What does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and he loses his soul, Jesus said, if you come after me, you must be able to lay it all down. Everything if I require, even your own life, if he requires it. He gave rank and greatness. How many of us would choose that? If you had the choice, if you could be king, if you could be president, El Presidente, you could be leader of all the free world, and all you had to do is give up Christ, what would you do? Or today you'd say, well, well who would want that position, right? <laughs> but I'm just saying, in the, in the best of times, you could rule it all. Sounds like the devil tempting Jesus said, and I'll give you all the world, Satan said. He tempted you, so I'll give you. Look at the worlds. <laughs> of course, how pathetic they're not his to give. Are they? Yeah, he's the ruler of the world, but you're right. If I had been Jesus, I'd have said, yeah, right. <laughs> Jesus said something far better. Moses gave up rank and greatness. Secondly, gave up pleasure. No doubt worldly pleasure of every kind was at his fingertips. Sensual pleasures, intellectual pleasure, social pleasures. Anything his flesh desired, he could have. In the great nation of Egypt, there were literally thousands of opportunities to flee, feed the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every day, every moment, no doubt, you feed them. Feed the machine. 
with whatever it desired to eat. And pleasure is the one thing for which millions in our day and every day throughout history have lived. Right now we're in a mad rush to, to, to try to guarantee the same outcome for everybody. Well, not everybody, but certain people, right? Same outcome. Well, the same outcome. It's a total misunderstanding of the world, isn't it? Because it's pleasure, right? Because we, we don't want to suffer. Equality, we hear that bandied about all the time. I hear it, I hear it every day. I'm for equality, but we're not going to have it, are we? We're not going to have it in this world. And yet some worship it. It's a God. It's a, it's a false God. They worship their race. So, well, if we just ascend to the place of supremacy, then we will be happy. And yet you won't be happy. Because it's never enough for any of us, is it? And Moses knew that. He gave up pleasures. We want pleasure. If I just had the if-only lifestyle, if I only had this, if my people were only king, I'd be happy. If I only had a million dollars in the bank account, I'd be happy. I know this because this is the cry of my heart, too. J.C. Ryle said, Pleasure is the shadow which all alike are hunting, high and low, rich and poor, old and young, one with another, each perhaps pretending to despise his neighbor for seeking it. Like, you're, you're preaching to me, right? And you want pleasure. And that's true of me, okay? So you look down on other people, even though you're the one seeking it for seeking it. Each secretly wondering that he does not find it. Each firmly persuaded that somewhere or other pleasure, ultimate pleasure is to be found. What does it, gain? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I mean, Moses put his lips to this earthly cup, but he refused to drink. Are we after pleasure? Are we after, to, to, again, to paraphrase John Piper, the pleasures we find in God, in Christ? I can assure you, I have chased pleasure in my young life, and you will not find it outside of Christ. I've looked. That's why I love Ecclesiastes. It's almost my testimony. And it's a testimony of many of you. And in the end of the day, it was all with God, wasn't it? Love God and keep His commandments. That's the whole duty of man. That's it. In His glory. I mean, do we find our greatest pleasure in earthly things? I mean, Solomon Ecclesiastes said, Pleasure without God as its ultimate end is absolutely pointless. It's a chasing after the wind. And how, how much are you chasing after the wind? You're not going to catch it. That's why the Bible uses that phrase. That's why the Spirit inspired that. You cannot catch the wind, and you will not catch the wind. You'll inherit the wind, a whirlwind of God's judgment. I love the courage here Moses showed. Because it seems both Moses in verse 27, his parents verse 23, feared God more than they feared the king. I mean, Moses' faith in Christ ultimately made him fearless in the face of Pharaoh. I think it should make us more fearless. I don't mean to do foolish things. But I've asked you this before. What are we afraid of? In our drive for safety, how does it keep us back from God? How does it keep us out of church, for example? How does it keep us uh, from, uh, you know, we fear all these things. And there's a great spirit of fear that permeates our, our society now, especially in the last year. And yes, it's serious, and I know that, and I'm not taking it lightly, and I do not intend to communicate that this should be taken lightly. But what are we afraid of? we afraid of? Does, should that make us reckless? Of course not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying it should make us reckless. You know I've, I've never advocated that. 
But at the end of the day, God is sovereign, and your days are written in his book, every one of them. He's ordained for you. What are we afraid of? We should be willing to take risks for his glory, not risk foolishly and stupid things, but risks for his glory, living all out. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and you gain a long life because you stayed home or you feared this and you, you didn't go hard after God and go hard after his glory and his, his, his people and you lived a long life? Well, loneliness for one thing. What does it profit you? Nothing. Nothing. I've been disappointed to see churches still closed. Still closed. They should fire those elders. They're still closed after a year? Come on. What are we afraid of? Again, I know we've had, we have people who've had, I, I'm not, that's what I'm talking about. We have people who had good reasons. Miss. I, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the evangelical world that says, oh gosh, we've got to stay back. We've got to, we've got to stay in. We've got to, you know, no. I think John MacArthur has been absolutely right about this. I'm going to tell you, showing courage. And this is what Moses did, courage. He didn't fear the king. And again, I'm not fomenting some kind of rebellion against the king. I know we've had an election and all that. That's what I'm saying. I don't want to even sound like that, but I'm saying that what are we afraid of? Thirdly, he gave up riches, 20, verse 26. Egypt was one of the wealthiest nations in human history. So Moses could have enjoyed boundless wealth had he stayed with Pharaoh's daughter. We would get a taste of how wealthy Egypt has been in ancient times even today. Think about the, think about the pyramids. They're still with us. And the, the statues, thousands and thousands of years, and they're with us. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? And Moses gave it up. J.C. Ryle said, Let us look around us and observe how men covet wealth and what amazing pains and trouble they will go to, through to obtain it. Tell them of an island many thousands of miles away where something may be found which may be profitable if imported and at once a fleet of ships will be sent to get it. That's, that's right, isn't it? I'd send a ship probably, wouldn't you? I mean, if you thought it could profit. There's nothing wrong with profit. Right? That's not what we're saying, right? If it has you, that's the problem. Show them a way to make 1% more of their money, and they will reckon you the wisest of men. They will almost fall down and worship you. To possess money seems to hide defects, to cover faults. Think character flaws here. To clothe a man with virtues. People can get over much if you are rich. Boy, I almost don't even have to say anything, do I? We know wealthy people. And we admire them because of the wealth they've obtained. And yet, what kind of people are they? What have they done to obtain that wealth? History, history the road of history is littered with bodies of people. who They gained the whole world and yet lost their own soul. And they were very clear about that. So they loved the money. They loved all that went with it more than they loved Jesus. Is it a sin to have money, to have riches? No. Praise God, uh, he blesses people in the church, and, uh, and we have people with means in our church, and I've, in every church I've led, been thankful for that. We're thankful for them because they, they hold it with an open hand. It does not have them. I don't know if I've ever pastored someone who had a lot of things that had them, thankfully. God has lots of people in his church, and we're thankful for that. So that's not what we're talking about. The question is, does it have you? Moses gave it up. Rank and pleasure and riches deliberately. I mean, this certainly was not the immature decision of youth. He was 40 years old. He wasn't that young. It was not the foolish choices of a dumb man. Acts 7.22 says he was well-educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians. It's not a foolish man. 
life on this earth, even when it affords us great blessings like health and wealth, again, no, nothing wrong with those things intrinsically, still renders it ultimately unsatisfying. Because before you came to Christ, you probably had a gnawing at your soul. And if you're not in Christ, you have a gnawing. There's just something not right, and you can't be happy. I know that's who I was. I, could, I just couldn't be happy. I was only happy in Jesus. Couldn't be happy. I mean, we've been created with a built-in dissatisfaction with anything short of eternal heavenly glory. Nothing's going to satisfy you. Nothing at all. And what distinguishes a believer from a non-believer like is that a follower of Christ like Moses feels this frustration while the unbeliever does not. See, they don't think about this. And if you don't think about this, think about it. They're just after more and more and more and more and more. If we get this, we get this, we get this, then we'll be happy. No. And we know it. We know we're not happy. And there's something wrong here. Because we're made for eternal things, as C.S. Lewis, in that famous quote by him, he said, we're made for something better. We don't understand what it's like to have a great holiday at sea because we're made, we're made for something better. We, we don't enjoy the things of this world even because we're, we don't realize we're made for something better. I mean, the pleasures of Egypt, like the pleasures of this world, Moses knew are fleeting, verse 25 tells us. Moses, in verse 27, tells us he, he endured by faith what? In seeing his bank account? And seeing his name at the top of the page? No, in, in looking at him who is invisible. The invisible kingdom is more re real to him than the visible kingdom he could see. What about us? What about us? This applies to us, doesn't it? Earthly pleasures for Moses could not hold a candle to the greater wealth of the reproach of Christ. As seen in the affliction suffered by the people of God, he endured of seeing him as invisible. Is that you? Are you living with this internal, eternal perspective all the time? I mean, there's all these enticements of the world's kingdoms, aren't there, all the time, especially in our modern world. All these enticements. But they could not capture Moses' heart or distract him from looking to the reward, that is the eternal city of God. The city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, chapter 10 told us. I think of the old movie from 1982, E.T. How many of you have ever seen E.T.? The Extraterrestrial. Well, I need to show it to some people. One of the, one of the greatest blockbusters of all time. There's an alien who landed on Earth, a really funny-looking alien landing on Earth. I guess all aliens would be funny-looking. That's the, apparently the essence of alienness. Little green men and such. But he landed on earth. He was three trillion light years from home. And a little boy discovers him. The whole movie is them trying to get him back home. And it's sad in places. And you almost cry in places. And see, I, I have to admit that. I'm sappy and I almost cry. But, but he wants to go home. And you know the big, the quote, E.T. phone home. But he can't phone home. And the whole movie, it's very sad, but it's also a parable, I think, for our lives. If we're Christians. You know you're not home yet. You know you weren't made for this world. You want to phone home. You want to go home. You know you weren't made. You're made for something else, right? That's what I love about that movie, because it's about us. Of course, Steven Spielberg didn't. He got the he got the uh, got the, the the diagnosis right, but not the cure. Moses says the cure is looking to him who is invisible. That's the cure. 
You want to be home? We're not home yet, but you want to be home? I mean, I felt this yesterday with the death of my, my, my buddy's father, who was like a father to me. I'm tired of death. I'm tired of saying goodbye to people. I love, and you probably are too. And I know it, I'm going to just, this is going to happen more and more and more the longer I live. And it causes a restlessness in me, and it should in you. Because like E.T., this, this is not my home. Not ultimately. And Moses, he was like E.T. He was longing for a greater city because he was designed for that city. And so are you. And that is the source of your discontentment. We're studying contentment in our small group. That's why. Because I'm infinitely discontent, it seems like. He chose something else. Uh, Moses did. We'll see in a moment. And so the real issue then was not Egypt's goodness or badness, whether Egypt was a place of comfort or oppression, or whether its pleasures were necessarily sinful. Some were, most probably were not. The issue, according to the text, concerned Egypt's worthiness of these saints' devotion. It's not a matter of whether you have good things or bad things. I mean, I was fundamentalist Christians, sometimes we can, everything's bad, everything's good, we draw this line. I don't think that's helpful. I think it's more of what has your heart? What do you worship? What is your idol? I asked that question, uh, I think, last week. I mean, in the same way 21st century America bears the same unworthiness as Egypt for the follower of Christ, in the very same way. This is not our home, and it is not worthy of our worship. It does not make a good God. I mean, for Moses, as for us here in the 21st century, as, as followers of, of God and as members of being among God's people, it was and is utterly foolish to choose earthly comfort, which fades over time, over eternal blessedness, which never ends. And the older I get, the more I understand this. I really do. I don't have a death wish or anything, <laughs> but uh, I understand it now what I did when I was you know, in my 40s. For Moses, this meant the loss of earthly titles and earthly wealth and earthly pleasures. It meant persecution, even perhaps martyrdom. But for Moses, the choice was obvious. Is it for you? So what did he choose? Well, one, he chose suffering and affliction. Was he crazy? Was he a sadist? What's the matter with him? We, want, we, we don't like to suffer, right? We want to be comfortable. We want the same outcome for everybody, or most everybody. No. Moses knew better. He chose suffering and affliction with God's people. God's people were, they weren't the, uh, you know, the big and the rich. These weren't, the, the, these weren't the, the leaders of society. They were the dregs of society. They were despised and mistrusted. They were the scum of the earth. And anyone who threw their lot in with these people would face persecution. I mean, look at World War II, Nazi Germany. The Jews have been persecuted throughout history, haven't they? And I think it goes back to the, them being the persecuted people. And being a Jew in Germany and being open about it would get you what? Arrested and taken to a concentration camp. That was basically what Moses chose. I, I chose the concentration camp to be faithful to God over earthly pleasures and freedom. J.C. Ryle said, Flesh and blood naturally shrink back from pain. It is in all, us all to do so. We draw back by a kind of instinct from suffering and avoid it if we can. If two courses of action are set before us, we, which both seem right, we generally take that which is least disagreeable to flesh and blood. And we do. We spend our days in fear and anxiety when we think affliction is coming near us. 
and use every means to escape it. And when it does come, we often fret and murmur under the burden of it. And if, and if we can only bear it patiently, we count it a great matter. We are proud of ourselves if we've come through it. Moses chose to be afflicted by throwing his, in his lot with the people of God and being mistreated with them. Right now, I think it's still easy enough to be a Christian in this country. But I don't think it's going to be for very long. With the laws I see coming down the pipe, this Equality Act and all this stuff, it's going to be hard. I think it's going to get harder. And to be honest with you, I think that's good for the church. Because then we're going to know where we really stand, aren't we? Moses knew where he really stood. When the sun is shining and the, uh, everything is going well, it, you know, as, as uh, one of our friends used to say, any fool wants to be a part of that, right? You'll join that up. Right? Oh, the church is a good place for the middle class, you know, upper, upper middle class people. Oh, that's great. We'll go be part of that. When the church is being persecuted, how many of us want to be a part of the church? When it's costly to be a Christian, who among us will be left? Again, we're not anywhere near there. I know we gripe about it, but we're not anywhere near there. But we might be. I'm not, as Pastor Doug loves to say, I'm not the prophet, neither nor the son of a prophet, but it just looks like it's headed that way, and I think it will purify the church. We've never been good when we've had the franchise, right? I mean, look at the early church. <laughs> when they gained ascendancy in Rome, they declined immediately because we're going to see that there's no crown without a cross. Moses knew that this momentary light affliction was producing in him weight of glory far beyond all comparison with Paul. He knew this because he looked not to the things that are seen, which are temporal, but the things that are unseen, which are eternal. We look to those things, don't we? No matter who's in the Oval Office, the unseen realities are bigger than him or her or in any other office or the pastor of this church for that matter. He's the king of kings. And Moses chose to be afflicted in order to be faithful to him. By being mistreated to them. Raul said, Faith told Moses that affliction and suffering were not real evils. And we should know that. That when we suffer, it's not really evil. They were the school of God, in which God trains the children, his children of grace for glory. Sufferings are the medicines which are needed, needful to purify our corrupt wills. They are the furnace which must burn away our dross. They are the knife which must cut the ties that bind us to the world. Marvel not. That Moses refused greatness, riches, and pleasure, he looked far beyond that, far forward. He saw with the eye of faith kingdoms crumbling into dust, riches making themselves wings and flying away, pleasures leading on to death and judgment, and Christ only, and his little flock enduring forever. The church is ultimate. The church of the living God, this is ultimate. This is it. This is the whole purpose of life, God's glory through redeeming a people. You are the purpose. Is that your purpose in life? To glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Is that it? He chose serving. He chose, secondly, a, kingdom, a company of despised people. What the movers and shakers? They bore the scorn of Christ who would come. They were the people through whom the Messiah would come. And they bore the scorn that the Messiah would ultimately bear for us. So to him, the reproach of Christ was greater than the riches of Egypt. I think that's central here, verse 26. I mean, in turning from Pharaoh's court to join forces with Israel, Egypt's slaves, you get the picture? He joined forces not with Egypt, but their slaves. 
Moses would be seen as a fool, as a weak-hearted man, a crazy man like Noah. 120 years, he'd be on a boat, right? Those people are like, Noah's a nut. Noah's crazy, he'd be on a boat in the desert. That's what, that's what he was doing. And that's what you're going to look like to this culture. When you say Jesus is Lord, he died on the cross and rose on the third day, and I literally believe that. I believe this is the word of God. It's going to be really countercultural. When you say, I believe that same-sex attraction and marriage are sins condemned by a holy God and that marriage is between a man and a woman exclusively for a, in a covenant union for a lifetime, you're going to be excluded from places. When you have the temerity to say that life begins at conception, people aren't going to like you. Just try it sometime. I'm not going to like you. When you have the audacity to say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by Him. When you trash their coexist bumper stickers that way, they're not going to like you very much. They're not going to say, man, he's a good guy. They're going to say he's evil and wicked. All the things they say now, right? He's intolerant, bigoted. They'll call you worse things. But Jesus said, that's, that's, what, that's the cost of following me. That's just being a Christian. That's Christianity 101. We're just now getting to that part, maybe in this country, right? A little bit. I mean, we've been at ease in Zion for far too long, and we've seen the decline of the church. Moses chose the company of despised people. Thirdly, he chose the reproach and scorn of following Christ. That's it. He would lose his influence, Ryle said. He would forfeit for favor and good opinion of all among whom he had loved. But none of these things moved him. He left the court and joined the slaves. There are a few things more powerful than ridicule and scorn. It can do far more than open enmity and persecution. Many a man would march, who would normally march up to a cannon's mouth or lead a forlorn hope or storm a breach in war has found it impossible to face the mockery of a few companions and has flinched from the path of duty to avoid it. To be laughed at, to be made a joke of, to be jested and sneered at, to be reckoned weak and silly, to be thought a fool. There is nothing grand in all this, and many, alas, cannot make up their minds to undergo it. I don't like being made fun of, and you don't either. I'm sure. Not many of us do. I'd be lying if I said I did. In fact, you want to make me really mad, make fun of me in front of a lot of people. I have to go somewhere and pray hard for you not to see my flesh out in the open. <laughs> That's my family. But that's the price. No crown without a cross. That's not, this is not abnormal. We think, well, the 21st century is abnormal. The 1950s, that was normal. You know, happy days, here again. Well, no, it wasn't normal, and it wasn't all that great back then. This is normal. Are you going to bear the scorn of Christ, or are you going to cower when that day comes? If they were to ever come for you like they did the Jews, what will you do? We say, I don't know Christ. Like Peter, will you deny him once, twice, three times, four times? Deny him? Abdicate? What is your motivation? Well, that's my last point here in a, a couple of minutes. Moses said he'd rather have Jesus than anything, just like George Beverly Shea. Right? You know that song some of you do? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. George Beverly Shea, Billy Graham's right-hand man back in the day, sung that many times in church growing up. But do I mean it? It was easy back in the 70s, man, you know. It's a year of the evangelical, man. It's a year to be born again, 1976. Jimmy Carter was the president, right? Southern Baptist. 
and the church declined. We had the franchise. Had you rather have Jesus than anything? He said, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured to seeing him as invisible. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth and treasures of Egypt. He's looking to the reward, to the final reward. What did he do? Well, it led, his faith led to works. He, he left Egypt not being afraid. He was fearless. He kept the Passover, which pointed to Christ, right? That meal that points to, the, to Christ, and led Israel out of Egypt, verse 29. His faith led to action. It wasn't just a hope-so faith or a keep-it-under-a-bushel a faith or a Sunday morning faith. I go down there to Christ's fellowship, and I like those people. Boy, during the, I'm, I'm incognito as a Christian during the week. I'm afraid that's some of us. I hope not. A lot of you here probably not, thankfully. But you can't have it both ways. God will share his glory with no man, with no thing. Moses knew this. And it led to him being the, the prophet, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. So what kind of choices does your faith cause you to make? And what do your choices say about your Christian faith? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. Not how much theology do you know, or how many big fat books like the one I talked about earlier have you read. Those are wonderful, but they don't really prove anything. You're doing that on, you know, on your porch in the 65 degree weather during the spring, right? Nobody doesn't prove anything. And it doesn't. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Are you looking to the rewards? To the reward? What is what place does Christ have in your affections? Are you living as if the God you cannot see, the God who used Moses to save the Hebrew nation, is more real than the pleasures of this life that you do see? Would an outsider, if they watch your life for a few days, be convinced that you're a Christian? Do you consider the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the things of this world? Lately, I've had many, a number of people, let's say that, that's the way, I don't want to exaggerate it, but a number of people I went to Southern Seminary with who've apostatized from the faith. The pressure of this world, the pressure of the, the great awakening and other things like that have pressed in on them. And they knew we couldn't have it both ways, so they've chosen that in the name of all kinds of evil things. And they've gone off the reservation. And, and 10 years ago, I would never, ever in a million years thought they would have. But it's because they couldn't stand the reproach of Christ. They couldn't stand on His Word. They couldn't be faithful to this. They couldn't be faithful to this. Where will you be? If things grow worse in our country, you have one life. I tell my kids this all the time. One life. My friend Harold Dyer is in the presence of the Lord this morning, but he had one life. And I don't feel like it was very long. It was 86 years, but man, that didn't, all the years I knew him didn't feel all that long to me. One life. One life. What will you do with it? Just like Moses, what will you give it to? And if you're outside of Christ, You've rejected him, or maybe you go to church and you and a Christian family or something like that, and you're hiding out as an unbeliever. Here's my question for you, or my exhortation for you. Let's put it that way. In the end, there's only two ways to live. 
There's the path that Moses has set forth for us here this morning. And then there's a path that leads to destruction. You can't have it both ways, no matter how much you claim to know God. What is it going to be? But if you're lost, it's the path that gives everything to follow Christ. It's the path to destruction. Put that last that verse up here again from, from Luke. Here we go, church. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. It's daily supposed to be there. Take up his cross daily and follow me. How often do we live the Christian life? Daily. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Moses knew that. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what's it going to profit you, Christ Fellowship, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul forever? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Moses and the path that he blazed here because it points to Jesus, the great forerunner of our faith, and the path he blazed, where alone is satisfaction found. May we all lay aside this world. May we all be willing to say, I want to bear the reproach of Christ. May we all be willing to say, this momentary light affliction is producing in me a weight of glory far beyond all comparison. May we all look to the things that are unseen. See him who is invisible more than we see the things that are visible. And worship and glorify him and him alone. We pray all this in the strong name of that great final prophet and priest and king. Jesus the Christ, our Lord. Amen.